The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, some some of what we saw in 2016 is that people uh, start to believe around the election things that aren't necessarily true, or that things that are um, that that something is popular that isn't popular. Again, through the takeover of systems and the belief that humans are supporting or saying or doing things that they're not. Um, I think I see the same harms in business. I our, our systems for understanding what is a popular business based on reputation, with say Amazon reviews or followers or so forth also being corrupted. And I think those are all going on and the attacks will get worse. This is maybe not the world's most important thing, but notice and comment systems and democracy also depend on the idea that people are human. So I mean things where you think something is a human and they defraud you, take your money or take the leader you thought was going to be the leader of your country or make you buy a product that you thought was one way and turns out to be another. Those are the kind of harms that I think come out of impersonation, most obviously. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 3rd, 2023. Until this year, Tim Wu was Special Assistant to President Biden for Competition and Tech Policy. One of the leading thinkers in progressive approaches to antitrust, Tim has since returned to Columbia Law School, where he is the Julius Silver Professor of Law, Science, and Technology. Since leaving government, he's been offering his thoughts on how the government should regulate artificial intelligence. I spoke with Tim about his experience in government, whether he's concerned about AI's existential risks, and what his priorities would be for making sure that AI serves society's, and not just the private sector's, interests. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 3rd. Tim Wu on AI regulation. So Tim, let me start by asking you for kind of a big picture baseline, which is, um, how big of a deal do you think that the set of technologies that we call AI or machine learning, whatever the label we use, how big of a deal do you think they're going to be, let's say in the next, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. So let's say on a scale from it's a fun toy to it's like the invention of fire, which some people have have claimed. (laughs) Where do you, where do you fall on that spectrum? I'm definitely not on the invention of fire uh, part. I, uh, this is a little bit of a cop out, but I'm waiting to see whether we hit something, a limit that we're not fully aware of. I mean, I would say like invention of fire if it keeps going and going, but I do wonder if, and I think we're going to know in a year or two or three, if for some reason we hit something that we didn't really predict that is going to make it not uh, be able to basically surpass or equal human intelligence in a meaningful way. And that I guess that's slightly a cop out, but I, I've st- I guess my answer is it remains to be seen. I think we'll know the answer in like two or three years. You know, a little bit like self-driving cars, which are in a sense form of AI, is you you know you solve ninety-seven percent of the problem, but then you got the three percent problem, and that turns out to be like really limiting. And I I don't know if we've hit that yet. So so I maybe another way to sort of get a cut at this question is is to instead of asking about the capabilities of AI, to ask about the risks of AI. So you know, there's a debate within the AI policy field about whether this focus on existential risk that has increased a lot in the past few months. So for example, this the recent statement from the Center for AI Safety that's signed by you know, Sam Altman and Jeff Hinton and all these other kind of pioneers, that AI is a, quote, societal scale risk uh, that they analogize to pandemics and nuclear war. You know, there's a concern among some that this focus on existential risk, you know, which would assume, I think, that AI will continue to 
uh, evolve at the kind of double exponential rate that it's going, and we're going to solve that you know three last three percent part to AGI or whatever. There's a concern that these uh, this focus is going to you know, crowd out more immediate problems. You know, the effect on the yeah. economy, discrimination, you know, what, whatever whatever it is. You know, the uh, the uh, Timnit Gebru is a, a you know prominent AI ethics researcher. Uh, on Twitter, she notably compared the big existential risk statements to a, a DDoS attack <laughs> that distracts from immediate issues. Um, and I'm curious what 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 you uh, what you think of that kind of perspective. So you know, I'm I'm disposed to agree. I think there is. Uh a set of cutting edge uh, AI technologies that are exploring this existential risk question. But to have the sense that that is the challenge that we're facing as a society and to take away from the more obvious, immediate, concrete harms that I think are already becoming evident is an enormous mistake. And I think reflects something broken in the conversation that there is way too much of a focus on admittedly interesting philosophical questions uh, at the expense of more obvious and even present harms. Do, do you think it's a matter of talking less about the existential risks or just talking more about the present risks? And, you know, I, I, I sometimes analogize this to how we sometimes think about uh, climate change, right? You know, there, there are those who think that we need to address the sort of immediate effects of, you know, forest fires and you know, whatever the case may be, and, you know, decarbonizing the grid and, and other people who think that, well, that's all fine and dandy, but unless we're thinking also about, you know, 20-year geoengineering projects, we're, we're missing the point. And, you know, one wants to be able to harmonize both of those, but I agree that it is, it is difficult when, when people start talking about the end of civilization. That does tend to take all the oxygen out of the room. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the problem is there's a big difference between what should be an academic conversation and what should be a government and regulatory conversation. I, I just think you have to have both. Maybe that's the best way of putting it, that it shouldn't be one conversation and trying to crowd it out is, is uh, foolish. Um, you know, just for example, it was and, you know, still is important to have conversations about nuclear war and the potential for the uh, extinction of the human race. But that doesn't mean you don't also need to regulate uh, nuclear energy or um, even microwave ovens or whatever else. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And I, I sometimes think that there's something unusual, almost amateur about some of the academics in their entry into, into the regulatory uh, side of things, uh, maybe this is unfair to say, but sometimes they claim that you have to focus on this as opposed to other things. Because law doesn't work so well with big abstract harms. It works well with conduct, demonstrated harms, and rules. So, so let you know. So, you, you you mentioned that we need both sort of an academic conversation and a government conversation. So, let, let's turn to that government conversation, because you know I think you are in a fairly unique position of of having a foot in, in both worlds. You know, you're a law professor at Columbia, but up until this year, you were at the National Economic Council as, and I hope I get this the title right, the special assistant to the president for competition and uh, tech policy. Uh, you worked on a lot of things, obviously, a lot of it related to sort of antitrust more generally, but I. I Assume that you know, AI issues did bubble up at the very least near the end of your tenure once ChatGPT exploded uh, onto the scene. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, both within your role and then just you know, within the National Economic Council and sort of the folks that you interacted with, how much time was spent thinking about AI as a very important part of the agenda? I mean, I think an enormous amount of time uh, was spent, um, partially because it's interesting, partially because there's a lot of voter and citizen concern and a desire, um, a sense that the government should be responsive. The, the White House, I don't think, has released its um, initiative, but I think it's kind of a very badly kept secret that they are planning on you know, doing something in, in the short term um, using authorities they have or authorities they need. So I think it was um, a serious issue and uh, one that a lot of people spent a lot of uh, time on particularly in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, but also at our area of the White House, CNEC. And in, in terms of what the administration has done so far, you know, how would you grade its performance in, in sort of staying caught up with how quickly this technology is evolving? So just to give a little bit of context, we're recording this 
on June 21st. Um, yesterday, June 20th, President Biden went to uh, Silicon Valley and, and gave a speech emphasizing that AI policy was a top priority for his administration and spoke with some sort of AI researchers and folks in, in civil society. You know, the Biden administration has uh, released an AI Bill of Rights, which it did last October. Um, NIST, the uh, standard setting body in the Commerce Department, released a, an AI framework recently. You know, all, on the one hand, all of this is actually pretty impressive, I think, in terms of um, speed. On the other hand, you know, when you're dealing with a technology that has such potentially transformative effects, and at least so far, has been growing at a kind of double exponential rate, it's also hard to keep up. So, um, you know, how how obviously it's maybe tricky for you to, to answer since you were sort of probably probably part of those conversations. Um, but you know, now that you've had a few months to be out of the government and get some different perspective, you know, how, how do you think the administration is doing trying to get its hands around this thing? I mean, I think they're doing uh, well. Um, I think the people involved are smart and knowledgeable and deep. I mean, the sort of stereotype of, of government um, not understanding AI isn't true when you're talking about people like Aradi uh, Prabhakar, who runs the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or, or AMAC, Alex McGilvery, who um, was a longtime tech industry I guess one of his last jobs was general counsel of Twitter. I mean, these guys know their stuff. They know as much as, as anyone. I don't, they're not, actually, she's a, an artist, a scientist, but they're, they're not AI scientists, but they understand this, this area very well. And I think they're as wary as doing, of doing bad things and stupid things as they are of um, uh, doing nothing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not like you, you would, if you walked, if you sat in on the conversations of the White House, you wouldn't be like, oh my God, these people don't know what they're talking about. You know, in terms of what they're doing, I think obviously they haven't launched their major initiative and we'll see how that is. But my impression is that they are asking the, the questions you would, you would want asked. Also uh, studiously watching the example of Europe, which is um, taking a much more aggressive and you know, risk mandated uh, approach. So yeah, I give them, I give them a thumbs up. I don't know if a grade uh, they haven't handed in the assignment yet, but in terms of process, I, I think it looks a little strong. It looks very good. I think the only real danger, like a lot of government things, is that uh, there's so many competing objectives and people who want to do things or have their own way of seeing things that you end up with something kind of messier and reflecting a lot of uh, interests and compromises and you know obviously defense and intelligence and the Justice Department all have their interests. So so that. That, as with the AI Bill of Rights, you saw a lot of scrambling around as people assert their interests. But uh, overall, I, I think it's definitely competent, uh, talented people working on this. What about Congress? I mean, you, you mentioned that there are lots of equities that need to be balanced in the executive branch. Obviously, that increases massively once you get to Congress for a variety of reasons, You know, not to mention the fact that there are two parties that are very far on uh, most things. You know, we, we had that hearing, uh, I think, a few weeks or months ago, where Sam Altman came and, and talked to some senators. And I don't know, I, I watched that hearing and thought it was surprisingly okay, at the very least, certainly quite good, I think, by congressional hearing standards. You know, earlier today, again, we're recording on June 21st, uh, Chuck Schumer uh, gave a sort of big speech on, on AI, pretty light on specifics, but um, clearly he's trying to stake out Congress's role in comprehensive AI regulation, which presumably would be necessary if, you know, the government wants to do a sort of a comprehensive look at this. They're probably going to need new new authorities, and we could talk about what those are later. But just as a general matter, um, you know, since some Congress will at some point have to step in, how how optimistic are you based on the performance you've seen so far? I have trouble dissociating that with my uh, views of Congress more generally, which <laughs> is, um, you know, they they. Uh, this is the stage where they um, invite you to take a kick of the football and impress everyone <laughs> with like how much time they want to spend and think and listen to everyone and Congress is learning. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're good at doing this. They, they had a great process leading up to the entire conversation about tech regulation. But um, I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, you know, Congress has not shown itself capable of addressing major issues over the last 20 years or so. You know, we're still waiting for just like privacy regulation, <laughs> children's privacy, children's protection. I mean, I, you name it. So, I mean, they put on a pretty good demonstration at the early stages. But uh, having been burned on this so many times, I, I don't think, uh, frankly, I don't think people can, we can wait for Congress. If the 
harms we're talking about are serious, and some that I do believe are serious. I think there are ways Congress could act, should act, to take care of this. But having had the experience working in government and watching it, I, I doubt they will do the things that are most important. So I, I think it's important that the administration act without Congress. So let's talk about what the administration should do. And you know, before I get into into what your sort of wish list would be for or the top priority AI regulation, I just want to start a little bit upstream and ask what you think the most pressing dangers are. You know, at the top of the conversation, we talked about sort of existential versus shorter term risks. Let's now focus on those shorter term risks within that bucket. What is the stuff that you're most concerned about? And then based on that, we can then talk about what you think are the most important interventions uh, from a regulatory perspective to make. Yeah. I mean, I can express those concerns in still somewhat uh, abstract, slightly higher level terms. I'm very concerned about human impersonation. I think that some of the greatest dangers are already showing uh, from AIs pretending to be humans in one way or another, and that a lot of the problems, uh, harms that we're already seeing with the corruption of voting system, corruption of, uh, of business systems, reputational systems come from that. And second, the problem I'd describe as uh, human usurpation, which has to do with one way or another in subtle ways, uh, once again, AIs coming to occupy positions that are meant for humans and even have humans under them uh, in a way that doesn't serve um, humanity. Those are different. They're different, a little different than extinction risk or something like that. Uh, but in my mind, uh, a step more concrete and more dangerous. So w- one thing that's interesting about th- these two concerns that you raised is that what you didn't talk about is the concern about bias. Um, and I only mentioned that because you know, at least within sort of the legal literature that I'm sure you're also very familiar with, the last couple of years have been dominated within the AI conversation you know, among law professors among this concern about bias. And, and I'm curious, is, is it that you think it's important, but maybe it's just a little lower level than what you were pitching it at? Or it's important, but you think it's actually fundamentally solvable? And even once we've solved it, we're still going to have these problems of impersonation and, and usurpation? That's a good uh, question. I regard bias along the same ways I think everyone else uh, does that they are a pressing problem. I don't know if I'm as confident in the ability of government through rules to solve bias problems. And maybe that's why I didn't leave it on my initial instincts. Maybe that's too, um, uh, or maybe I also feel that that has gotten a lot of attention. And uh, in fact, the FTC is trying to do what it can in that area. And I feel that it mildly under-publicized are the challenges we face from impersonation and usurpation. So it's not that I discount it. I just feel maybe that uh, we have other problems that are pressing that are getting more limited attention. Sure. So let's talk about those two then. Let's start with impersonation. What to you is the is the harm here, right? Because you can imagine a bunch, right? You can imagine dignitary harms to people who have been fooled, even if they're not sort of otherwise harmed. You can imagine harms of, well, if I believe it's a person, then that's going to have a greater emotional valence on me. Though an interesting question there is, you know, given how people already seem super attached to, you know, generative AI, romantic partners and things of that nature, you know, what, what, is, the, what is the delta there? But just, just say, say more about, you know, what, what the uh, masquerading concern is for you. Yeah, for me, I see it uh, in the corruption of systems that were designed with humans in mind. I mean, maybe the most obvious example is an election where you know someone manages to impersonate human voters and and give a result which is not reflective in fact of what uh, people wanted so you've uh, corrupted uh, democracy you know that's an extreme the milder version is you know some some of what we saw in 2016 is that people uh, start to believe around the election things that aren't necessarily true or that things that are um that that something is popular that isn't popular again through the takeover of systems and the belief that humans are supporting or saying or doing things that they're not. Um, I think I see the same harms in business. I, our, our systems for understanding what is a popular business based on reputation is say Amazon reviews or followers or so forth also being corrupted. And I think those are all going on and the attacks will get worse. This is maybe not 
the world's most important thing, but notice and comment systems and democracy sure. also depend on the idea that people are human. So I mean things where you think something is a human and they defraud you, take your money or take the leader you thought was going to be the leader of your country or make you buy a product that you thought was one way and turns out to be another. Those are the kind of harms that I think come out of impersonation most obviously. And so, you know, one thing you've been advocating for, and I think this has actually been for a few years now, um, I think at least as far back as you know, 2017, if, if my Googling is correct, is, you know, you've advocated for something like a, I think what you called it as like a Blade Runner law, right, that that would require automated systems to in some way disclose that they are that they are automated. And I have two questions about that. You know, the 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 first is maybe back to the sort of Congress versus executive branch issue. I mean, is this a sort of thing that you could have, I don't know, the FTC require as a matter of, you know, fair competition, or do you think this is something that you'd need some congressional law for? And the other question is, is this something you'd expect, you'd want to impose as a, a blanket requirement or, or maybe a more tailored way? And, and there I'm referring to the idea that like, look, you know, it's absolutely true that, you know, if you're trying to figure out whether a restaurant is good, you don't want fake reviews. Certainly you don't want fake votes in an election, but I don't know, maybe, um, if I call the customer support and, you know, a year or two from now, I'm talking to a, a, a AI voice that's unfailingly polite and pleasant and patient. Um, you, do I need to be told that I'm talking to a robot? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the benefit there on the market? I would say yes. I would say yes. And maybe it's not for the example of that one thing, but from, uh, and this maybe gets to your question of what is the problem if, you know, for example, <laughs> you, to take it further, you meet your you know, perfect romantic partner and later find out she's a robot, are you harmed or not? Which is a very kind of like philosophical question. Uh, but I do think there's, I I will say that a, a, not all, there, there's a sort of more straightforward economic harms that come from being defrauded, you know, by a more sophisticated version of this classic uh, uh, Nigerian scamster operating at scale. But even when it seems harmless, like consumer, you know, in a consumer helpline or something, I feel there's something dignitarily wrong with thinking that you are interacting with another human when it turns out the other party is actually uh, not human. Um, I think you've been fooled in some very deep way that goes to, I don't know how else to say it's the heart of being human. It reminds me of, um, what's that scam? Uh, is it catfishing? Am I getting that right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, the phrase where you get suckered into believing that one way or another someone's in love with you, it, it plays with your emotions. I, I think anytime we're dealing with someone and genuinely believing they're human or not, that you're being a hurt in, in a way that is pretty fundamental. Yeah, some some philosophy grad student should should write a dissertation about how um, AIs pretending they're human could not possibly be a categorical imperative because <laughs> you couldn't universalize that with that. <laughs> With that society falling apart. And I want to say, you know, it's um, it's easy to pick an example that is benign, but I feel like many of the examples will not be benign. Uh, and even if they're not outright fraud, it will be a kind of something we specialize in the United States, this kind of softer forms of deception that, uh, you know, make you order things on menus that you won't want or generally make bad decisions like, you know, renting furniture or the many other kind of bad decisions that economic or otherwise that people end up being talked into. And I think Lena Khan was right when she said that, you know, the deceptive deception gets supercharged when you have artificially intelligent means of doing it. The, the thing I really think people need to do is act quickly before it becomes a business model. This is a big mistake we had with privacy, um, you know, not acting 20 years ago to regulate the collection of, of data from everybody until it became sort of the leading business model of the Internet. And now no one seems to be able to unwind it, even though everyone is constantly feeling slightly manipulated, slightly uncomfortable and um, slightly spied upon at all times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then... Weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. You mentioned Lena Khan there, who's the chair of the FTC. And, and so, you know, is, is your view that this, again, back to the president versus Congress thing, is this, is this the sort of thing where you can make a decent amount of headway just using executive branch authorities? I think you can. So I, as opposed to unfair competition, I think it would be unfair and deceptive practices. And you can make some headway there. It's, it's slow moving. The FTC already has a, uh, privacy rule that they're they're working on, but they can uh, take some action. They can also issue enforcement guidelines that would suggest, for example, that um, not pre preemptively identifying yourself as non-human is a form of deception. It's a little untested, but I would at least think you got to try that stuff. 
Now, I think Congress should do it. And I think it's the most straightforward thing. But I, like I said, I've been burned so many times by Congress not doing things that any human alive would say, why don't you do that? That uh, I, I hesitate to put all my faith in that uh, particular branch of government. Yeah, it sounds like Lucy pulled the football out from under you too many times. You're talking someone who's been thrown uh, on his back way too many times, including during the last administration, including for things like children's protection laws, which probably 99.9% of the public agrees with, or children's privacy. And um, uh, you name it, Congress uh, is incapable of doing it. You, you've certainly come by your skepticism, uh, honestly. Um, so, okay, so we've talked about uh, the the deception, the impersonation. I'm talking about the other harm you mentioned, which is the the usurpation. And here, I, I'm curious what you think about an argument that that some folks have made. Um, Orly Lobel uh, has made it in her recent book, and Andrew Woods has made it in a great article uh, called uh, Robophobia. And that is that um, you know when we're thinking about what is the appropriate domain for algorithmic or AI action, we tend to have, we tend to have this double standard where we, we, we expect just the highest level of perfection from, from AI systems, and we ignore the fact that the current status quo is often sort of very, very dangerous. And so a perfect example of this, I think, is uh, self-driving cars, which you're right, are really struggling with that last 3%, but are arguably, even now, probably still much safer than your average human driver. And I bring that up because, you know, when you talk about usurpation, you know, how, how do you think about drawing those boundaries while still recognizing that, you know, on just like a risk adjusted basis, AI systems often do outperform humans, um, e- even if implementing them does, at least for some people, create a kind of ick factor? Yeah, no, I hear that. And I think that is uh, its own kind of cognitive bias. The main issue I'm concerned about with usurpation is economic and in its all forms. And it comes and it can be subtle. And I, I have to admit, slightly more abstract than uh, the first example of impersonation. But it comes where, I guess I define it, that humans become means to another end. Or when somehow, one way or another, uh, the AI is is over the human in the in the chain of command or the economic hierarchy, uh, based on their ability to earn greater profits for the ultimate sort of masters who are uh, usually the, the corporate uh, person. In other words, I think the prevalence of I guess non-human persons uh, threatens to squeeze out humanity, uh, or not all of humanity, but like many large parts of humanity. So I think it's a question of economic power. Now, what exactly do I I mean by that? I think you have kind of beginnings of this in uh, the treatment of workers in many jobs today, like, you know, most classically Amazon workers who become sort of subject to such, you know, automated like standards uh, that almost feels like they're not being fully treated as uh, humans. And in fact, you know, seem subservient to uh, an algorithmic plan uh, that takes them as secondary. And that, that's kind of more what I'm worried about than, than self-driving cars uh, crashing into people, if that, if that makes sense, is that the entire uh, system starts to view humans as sort of uh, secondary as opposed to primary. No, I mean that that makes a ton of sense, and and in a, you know in a way that's nothing new. I mean, what you're describing is in some sense just the next generation of of Taylorism, uh, you know, in the the Ford assembly line. I, I guess the question for me is, you know, is is the remedy to say, look, there's just going to be limits to us treating humans as as machines, or maybe the remedy is we just need more machines? Then, right? If if the restriction is going to be on you know, how we treat Amazon workers, then I suspect, you know, what Amazon would, how Amazon might want to respond and maybe a more humane way for everyone is just to, you know, finish that, you know, get that last 10% of the human out of the loop and just have everything uh, roboticized. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I'm glad you brought up Taylorism because that is exactly what I'm talking about and in more words instead of, instead of fewer, you know, I guess I'd say maybe when I thought about this, you know, and I thought about the conditions of work, it gets to the question of work more generally. And what I started to think is trying to sort of specifically protect individual classes from sort of being replaced by AI seemed like a bad idea and unlikely to be successful or just too unpredictable. But 
stronger labor protections generally, stronger recognition of, you know, humanity's need for things like time off or going to the bathroom or some, some limits on how they're used seem ever more important in a sort of more general purpose. Uh, that makes sense. That, that's, that's what I'm, that's where I settle. Uh, as for what you're talking about, you know, isn't it better to replace the workers with, with robots? I just don't think we're there. And I'm afraid for the workers who get caught in the middle and are treated by robots while the system overall becomes more and more automated. Because a lot of stuff that, as you know, we're seeing in a lot of these areas, a lot of things humans and only humans can still do, but they're expected to be part of, you know, as you pointed out, a larger Tayloristic system. And in that sense, not treated like humans. So we want human abilities without uh, respecting human vulnerabilities. Another you know, regulatory intervention that you, you've suggested is that we need to update the, the criminal code to deal with AI agents. And I, I found that a very interesting suggestion, but I, I wasn't sure what you meant. So I, I'd love for you to expand on that. I mean, is it a matter of, I'm assuming you're not suggesting that we punish ChatGPT, whatever that would mean. I mean, what, 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 what sort of um, uh, criminal updates are, do you have in mind? I do sort of mean that actually to, to be... Or not maybe at this level. It just, um, this is where the instinct comes from. And I regard this as kind of a good work in progress, particularly for academics. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, if a self-driving car kills somebody or causes someone to die, or in the case of ChatGPT, if ChatGPT itself says something that is in a category of per se defamation, you know, it says that someone has a dread disease or sexually assaulted somebody, something very damaging to their reputation, that you very quickly move to a conversation uh, about the mens rea of the AI or, you know, the situation. And it struck me in er as an area where we have right now technologies capable of violating these laws, but a setup where the laws were designed uh, with a human mind in conception, which is capable of various forms of mens rea. And so, you know, what I have in mind is legal academics and others to really think hard about this and ask whether there are going to be major loopholes, as I think we've already seen beginnings of in, in defamation. Now, what does that mean? Why did I say, does that mean actually punishing jet PT itself? I, I, I don't know if I mean the AI, but I do think the distance between the producer, the operator, the owner of the AI and the AI itself creates this, this kind of loophole um, that we need to identify and, and be able to fix. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's definitely an accountability gap, right? Because the AI can say, I'm just an AI. And the, uh, the coders can say, look, we don't actually know what this AI is doing. That's the whole point of this inscrutability issue. And then, you know, the, the victim is left without anyone, anyone to sue. Yeah, and you have this absurd conversation about whether, you know, there was actual malice on the part of the AI when it said that, you know, X and Y uh, sexually assaulted a student or whatever. And I just think those problems are going to get worse, and I'm just sort of trying to flag them as, uh, as, a, as an interested legal academic. Sure. So w one of the best ideas that you're best known for just outside the AI space is this return in both legal academic thinking, but also, you know, very much in policymaking this return to a more aggressive antitrust regime, right? What you've called uh, neo-Brandeisian antitrust uh, after uh, early 20th century uh, Justice Louis Brandeis and, and his sort of pioneering anti-monopoly thinking and, and trust busting. So I'm curious, do you think there is a consensus or even if not a consensus, then do you have a clear picture of what uh, neo-Brandeisian antitrust policy should be for AI, right? If Louis Brandeis, if you could sit down with Louis Brandeis and explain to him um, the, the modern AI landscape, what do you think he would, he would advise? Yes, I think there is a, a clear vision. Um, if, if Louis Brandeis uh, were here, I think he'd say two or three things. First, uh, Brandeis was concerned about concentrated power in all of its forms and aspects, whether private or public. And I think he would be concerned about the government acting, whether, you know, whether intended to or not, uh, to concentrate the power that comes with AI in a small number of actors. Uh, so I think that's one. The other thing that Brandeis deeply cared about was that uh, the legal system 
end result stay focused on humans and humanity and the conditions under which people live under. I think you write, wrote that the Constitution intended for us to have a right to live, not merely to exist. And that's part of what I talk about with usurpation. I think he'd be very concerned that we'll set up a system that is efficient, you know, an economy that is efficient, that is maybe highly productive, but forgets that the point of an economy is supposed to be for humans and not the other way around, that capitalism is supposed to be a tool for people and not, <laughs> you know, people the tool for capitalism. And AI kind of takes those dynamics, uh, which, you know, became very obvious in the early 20th century and could make them worse. In another uh, side, and maybe this third thing, I think Brandeis would see that there was also a potential for rebalancing of power or a decentralization uh, of economic capability in AI technology and a promise, therefore, of having more people being able to do more things. So I think you'd also potentially be excited about the you know, potential of AIs, uh, you know, however distributed or used to empower uh, people in the sense that land ownership might have done so in the, in the 18th century or 19th century. So those are some of what I think Brandeis uh, would say if he were here. And that's why I think there is a vision. I think that one of the first things government should be thinking about here is not locking up the AI market to basically two or three major platforms who are already dominant, uh, who already have extraordinary amounts of economic power. Um, that's where I guess it starts. And then, so, I, you know, with respect to that, I'm assuming you're referring to what is becoming a somewhat almost notorious part of the exchange between Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO, and, and the senators at that hearing where he suggested that there should be a actual licensing regime for large language models. I, I assume you would be against that because that would essentially lock in, you know, the four or five big players. Yes, I'm very opposed to any licensing model. Uh, I think that it would create a situation or an environment where, you know, three or four, five, maybe five companies would be able to comply with the licensing uh, restrictions. Uh, my small caveat is if we get to the point where we start to really think of this like nuclear technology that's about to explode, I might think a little differently. But at this stage to say, listen, this is a game only three or four companies get to play is really not good for us. And I think would sacrifice an important opportunity for the rebalancing of economic power. I'm also very interested in the history of uh, technology and technological innovation. And there are these moments, you know, like the personal computer, the invention of software itself, where you really have these explosions of economic activity that bring to life regions that, you know, might have been uh, inactive before in technology uh, research, you know, Texas, uh, Seattle, even California, Massachusetts, they're not exactly inactive, but not hot, hot spots. And I think we have, uh, you know, a moment here potentially of a rebalancing of power, shaking up tech, the tech industry, and it'd be a shame to lose it. When it comes, though, to what an actual sort of policy intervention would, would be, what, what do you have in mind? And I ask because you know, I think when most people think of, you know, robust antitrust, they think of breaking things up. And I guess you could do that, though that does raise this question of um, how that interacts with the, the fact that not just at an economic level, but at a deep technological level, these AI systems require massive amounts of data. And, and so there might be a concern that, you know, if you break these, these companies up, you are eliminating the, the very resource uh, or capability, however you want to call it, to make advances uh, in this space. Yeah, I don't buy that at all, I should say. Um, or I've heard that kind of thing so many times over the years that I do not believe it anymore. I, the intervention, though, that I'm talking about is, is more of a non-intervention, uh, at least to begin with. It is a steadfast determination to avoid handing this market to two or three actors. And that could come through a licensing regime. That could come with the wrong forms of regulation. Uh, you know, uh, your listeners might be confused. I've just spent, uh, I don't know how long, talking about all the ways you need rules. But those rules are targeted at individual and I think very specific harms. At the same time, I think uh, we need to see if we can have this be a moment that companies, maybe not with the most advanced AIs, 
where uh, maybe uh, there's a lot coming out of AIs that are, you know, only medium intelligent, but where companies take their shot. And as I said, our model should be either the personal computer revolution uh, of the 1980s or maybe the software revolution of that time. You know, a lot of capability and a lot of hands, maybe not, you know, super, there was only a small number of supercomputers, but uh, something more along the lines of, of uh, personal computer revolution, people trying stuff out. So you know, what one way that you could avoid this lockup is, again, by making sure that you don't have a system which advantages any particular small number of incumbent players. Uh, another way um, that I think is probably worth talking about is having the government play more than just a rule-setting role, but like an actual productive role in the generation of this technology. And one thing that's, I think, quite notable about this new generation of AI, at least, is just how disconnected it is from any government involvement. You know, when you compare it to the creation of the internet, which yeah, everyone knows was a kind of de Department of Defense project in the 70s and 80s, um, and then was sort of basically run under this interesting commercial contract relationship with the Department of Commerce. You compare that to the latest generation of, of AI, which just has nothing to do with either government funding or even honestly government funded research. It's just coming entirely out of these big companies. It, has the moment passed for the government to do, to play a more central role in the creation and deployment of these systems? Yeah. First, I share your instinct. It is a bit surprising. And I think government uh, historically has been good about, you know, funding, but then in some sense, use, providing guide rails or some basic rules you know, the internet, they funded a long time on the proviso that it was supposed to be non-commercial and it stayed non-commercial, you know, for the first 30 years or so. And then obviously that didn't last, but I, the non-commerciality of it was important in the early uh, stages. I don't think it is too late. I think that it would be worth thinking about either the government acquiring, I mean, if we're serious about this stuff, or funding existing models. I think buildings, obviously, I think building government's own AI, it seems a little bit like a bad idea, but funding contingent on certain rules, particularly designed to promote, in my view, promote competition and keep some of the advantages of the early movers equalized would be a very appropriate role in my view. You recently wrote on on Twitter that to understand your your views on the future of AI, you know, we should revisit your uh, your 2011 book, The Master Switch, um, which I, I read when it came out and very much enjoyed. And I hope you'll pardon the the potted summary I'm about to give, but I think a a fair you'll tell me I think if I get this wrong, but I think a fair summary of that book is that the history of 20th century communications technology is this sort of cycle between fragmentation that leads to consolidation. Uh, and then there's a new technological disruption, which leads to fragmentation, which then leads to consolidation. And then this cycle sort of continues. And you trace that really nicely through the telegraph and the telephone and TV and, and um, software. So, you know, if, if this model applies to AI, where are we in, in this uh, fragmentation consolidation cycle? Well, uh, that is how I see it. And a key uh, part of that book is to understand that that cycle can be interrupted and blocked by self-interested incumbents and major companies. And at times it didn't fire. You know, a disruptive technology was sort of muted or adopted or, you know, reduced to uh, meaninglessness. It took, sometimes it's luck and obviously the history reveals things, but there's times where it didn't happen. And so I think we're at a, fa a phase a little not unlike when FM radio was challenging AM or maybe when tele early television phase, where there is an opportunity to sort of have a lot of companies trying a lot of interesting new things, shaking up the industry. You know, we've had the current branch of uh, monopolists and, and dominant players for almost 20 years now. It's about sort of time. Uh, I think we're potentially in that phase, but I do think it could become absorbed and we'll end up something with the level, you know, where everything ends up being uh, supporting existing uh, business models. And it'll be as if Western Telegram uh, got a hold of the telephone. Um, you know, I think it is sort of telling that there's been so much effort to attach uh, AI to search, which, of course, is a dominant money making paradigm for Google and to some degree for for Microsoft or they hope it will be. Um, you know, search is important, but it could be there's another paradigm out there that we're not even uh, seeing. So I think, as I said, we're at a potential 
moment where you could see a lot of stuff happening. And that's why I think we need to act very carefully. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if I understand the argument correctly, it's that, you know, one role for government is to, is to prevent the consolidation uh, from, from happening. No, what, what, sorry, let me make it very clear. What the role of government is not to aid the Kronos effect or aid the suppression of what could be a real moment for new technologies. And, and we see that happen all the time in other countries. Uh, it's happened in the United States at times, but if you ever wonder, well, you know, why exactly did Europe did such a terrible job during the computer age and uh, also early, early uh, internet? Uh, you know, I think it's because they had telecom monopolists who wanted everything to happen on their terms. And they weren't very good at controlling them in fundamental ways. I mean, I think of like Japan, which was really big in the 70s and 80s, and then basically um, let its uh, monopolists run um, the internet and mobile phone revolution and ended up not going very far. So uh, that's what government uh, needs to do is avoid helping monopolists fortify their position during this age. Well, I, I think that's a, a actually a nice sort of summary of, of this conversation and a, and a good place to, to leave it. Um, Tim, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. And I look forward to talking to you about uh, these issues in, in the years to come. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jed Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.